Guys, friends, keep your um, Bibles open there in Joel. Turn back to Joel, Joel chapter 1 and 2, uh, which is what we're looking at this morning. Uh, We've already reflected a little bit on it, haven't we? But increasingly, Christians are considered to be on the wrong side of history. But I thought we could ask, what does being on the right side of history even mean? Uh, Dave's already given us a bit of an answer. That's good. Uh, these days, I think it's used as a, as a slogan to legitimise a current fashionable view, whatever that might be, and then in turn to condemn those who disagree with that view. So, for example, uh, everyone who agrees with the view, uh, maybe it's climate change, maybe it could be whatever those views are these days, in question is seen, whoever agrees with that view is seen as intelligent and enlightened and therefore on the right side of history. But for those who disagree, well, they're ignorant, out of touch and naturally on the wrong side of history. It would be best if they just kind of kept quiet and fade into the past. Now, as Christians, can I say, it's likely that there are times when you're made to feel that way. Uh, your views are out of touch. Your beliefs are wrong. I'm pretty sure that there would be plenty of people who would think exactly that about the book of Joel. It's a message about the outcome of human history. Joel's prophecy is not not necessarily an easy one for us to hear. Uh, As it's been read for us in chapter 1 this morning, I expect it was clear that this is not going to be an easy topic. It's not going to be a popular topic. But it is a necessary topic for us to understand and to grapple with. Because Joel is warning us about bad news. And if something bad is coming, wouldn't you prefer to be warned about it? So that you can take the appropriate action. I mean, I know I would. There are some difficult things to hear in Joel, but God wants us to hear them. He wants us to understand the world we live in rightly. He wants us to understand... Uh, the things that happen in our own lives. And he wants us to know where all of life is heading. And so let's, uh, before we get into Joel more, let's stop and pray together and ask God to speak his word to us, to our hearts and minds, through his prophet Joel today. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that you care enough about us to warn us to speak to us the truth, even when it's hard to hear, so that we can know how to rightly respond. You are not an indifferent God. You are a God who loves the world that you created and are concerned that we know you rightly. And so help us today as we spend this time together in Joel and reflect on the difficulty of this first part of the book. Uh, Help us to see that in Jesus we have great hope. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Joel is speaking about a devastating event. Uh, But before we hear what he has to say, uh, what do we know about him? Well, he's the son of Pethuel, verse 1. And who is Pethuel? Well, uh, he's the father of Joel. And uh, that's pretty much all we know. Um, We don't actually have any of the uh, normal markers to know the period in which Joel wrote. So, for example, we don't know who the king was at the time, which often kind of uh, helps us to understand exactly the time in which they're writing. We've got a general idea without having the full idea, but he does regularly mention um, 
uh, his regular mentions of Judah and Jerusalem and the priests who minister there at the temple suggests that he's speaking to God's people in the southern part of Israel's kingdom. Uh, but the thing we do know about him is that he's a prophet. Now, Seth, I said, introduced us to Zephaniah, who is also one of the uh, minor prophets, of which there are 12. Joel is one of them. Uh, and their, their role was to call God's people back to covenant obedience. Uh, in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord that came to him. So this is the message that God speaks through his prophet, Joel. And it's actually important for us to recognise that this isn't Joel's message. It's not his reflections uh, on what's been going on that he's just putting out there for people to consider. These are the words that God has spoken to Joel and through Joel to his people and to us today. And so we need to need to listen to Joel's words as God's words. And notice that this is a message that everyone needs to hear. See verse 2? Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. This is for both leaders and all the people, everyone, everywhere. And notice the gravity of the situation there in verse 2. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And the obvious answer is no. This is one of those massive events that the following generations need to know about. Tell your children of it, verse 3. And let your children tell the generations that follow and the generations that follow them. I mean, just like we teach kids things, perhaps uh, teach them of the Holocaust or we commemorate Anzac Day, not just to remember those who gave their lives in war, but also to warn the following generations of its horrors. And we'll no doubt tell our kids and grandkids about the years of COVID. So what is this thing that's happening here? Well, a devastating and crushing locust plague has virtually destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, see verse 4. The cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust has vir virtually stripped the place bare one after the other. Now, if you've watched the uh, little David Attenborough video in our daily Bible readings, then you'll have got a sense of just how destructive a locust plague can be. Uh, so, for example, in, a, in one square kilometre of a locust swarm, you'll get up to 80 million locusts. I mean, the, the largest locust swarms reach over 900 square miles, more than three times of New York City. They contain up to 192 billion locusts. And in one day, it's actually estimated that they can eat the same amount as 90 million people. Now, I take it you get the picture. It's total devastation for some places. And, and look at the effect that it has on three areas of Judah's lives. You can see it there on your outlines. Joel tells us the effect of the plague, this plague on their land, on their relationship with God and on the people themselves. So firstly, the land has been shredded. Look at, look at verse 7 again. It has laid waste my vine. And splintered my fig tree, it has stripped off the bark and thrown it down, their branches are made white. Or, or from verse 10, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field 
are dried up. Notice the repetition of despair, destroyed, mourns, dries up, languishes, perished. He describes the effect on the land like the destruction of war in verse 6. He says, therefore, a nation has come up against my land. Speaking of these locusts, powerful and beyond number, its teeth are lion's teeth and it has fangs of a lioness. And you know, what makes this even more significant is that this land here is not just any old area of land because God says here in verse 6, notice what he says, that this destruction is of my land. This is not any area of land. This is the promised land, the land that God gave to Israel as his place of blessing where he would provide for and give them everything they needed. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's more going on here because Joel makes it clear that it's more than just the effect on the land. I mean, this plague of locusts has cut off a significant aspect of their relationship with God. In verse 9, the temple ministry has has to cease. Look at verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. You know, part of the the daily rituals of Israelite life and worship and relating to God were to bring their various offerings of grain and wine and oil. The relationship with God was revolved around their sacrifices, but if their crops fail, there's no grain, there's no wine or oil, and so their very means of relationship with God is cut off. Something has gone terribly wrong here. Their daily covenant relationship with God is on hold. And so the impact on the people themselves is huge. I mean, the farmers' crops are destroyed along with their livelihoods, which means the the supermarket shelves are bare, so that affects everyone. And that includes all the priests and ministers in the temple. See verse 13, wail, O ministers of the altar. Why? Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God, See, the people of Israel, everyone is affected. They're in utter despair because no one escapes. Now look at the end of verse 12. Gladness dries up from the children of man. You can feel the life being sucked out of this nation, the grief that it leaves in its wake. But is this just a a kind of a national disaster story? Uh, Is it maybe just another kind of David Attenborough destructive nature lesson? something that people have just got to kind of pick themselves up from and move on. Well, actually, no, it's not that, is it? There's something even more significant going on here that they need to understand. I mean, Joel is doing what prophets do. He's warning people. Uh, What Joel is describing is exactly what God promised would happen if God's people rejected him. we, We need to kind of have a quick look back at what God promised his people in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I've got this on the screen so that you can see it. But Deuteronomy 28, verses 2 to 5, where God is actually the people on the edge of the promised land, about to go into the promised land, and God reminds them of the covenant that he's made with them with promises and curses for their obedience or disobedience. And so we read in verse 2, and God says, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. I mean, so here is God's 
promise of blessing of Israel in the promised land if they obeyed him. But look down at verses 15 and 16. But if you will not obey the voice of your Lord, the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. And what might that look like? Well, we see a little further down in, in 28, at, at verse 38 and following, he says, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourselves with oil, for your olives shall drop off. The cricket, or the locust, shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. In other words, the locusts are a sign that not all is well in, in, in Judah. Now, another a great place to, I think, help us understand what's going on here is King Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. All the people are gathered and King Solomon prays in chapter one, chapter, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 37 to 40, and he prays that if a famine or pestilence or locust or caterpillar or whatever plague comes upon their land because the people have sinned, he says to God, then when your people turn back to you, please forgive. See, God always warned his people that if they rejected him, they would face his consequences. And so Joel is saying, look at what is happening to you. Don't you get it? What's happening to us is exactly what God said would happen if we rebelled against him. This is God's judgment upon our sin. And no wonder Joel tells them to wake up from their complacency in verse 5. And no wonder there's lamenting and mourning and anguish and tears. And so what are they to do? Well, verse 14, the priests and the ministers are to consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. When everyone, priests and people, are to come together at the temple, not with offerings because they've got nothing to give, but they're to come together and they're to cry out to the Lord. They're to wake up and to come with weeping and mourning with genuine heartfelt grief over their sin. They're to put on sackcloth and fast because their relationship with God is in tatters. They're to cry out to God in genuine grief and repentance for their sin. It's the right response to the judgment of God. And see, remember, that's, that's the message of the prophets, isn't it? Tell those who are under the judgment of God so that they may, may call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, we're not told exactly what they've done wrong, although the scriptures give us a history of Israel and the things they did get wrong. But we're not told exactly here, and that's very helpful for us, really, because this isn't a warning that's tied to one time and one place. This is a warning for Israel, yes, but it's also a warning for every generation. And we live in a world that is in open rebellion against God. I think if, if we think that's going to end well, then we're mistaken. It's not about being on the wrong side of history. It's about being ignorant of what history teaches us about God 
and about ourselves. I'm not saying that every time some disaster happens in our world or in our own personal lives that we can link it to some specific sin. In fact, the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. We saw that in Luke 13 and we see it in Joel because God does that for us in Joel. But in Luke 13, a a tower had collapsed and, and killed a bunch of people and Jesus' disciples want to know if that's because they're more sinful than everybody else. And Jesus says to them, no. They're no more sinful than others, but he says it still offers them a warning. You be careful. Unless you repent, something worse will happen. It's really the same warning that Joel goes on to warn Israel of here. And now say, verse 15 in chapter 1 there is both a key verse in the first section of Joel, but it's also a turning point. Uh, so let me look at verse 15 there. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Uh, this verse actually begins to show us Joel's even greater concern for his people and why the imagery that he uses in the second part of our passage gets even more distressing. Now, alas is a cry of alarm. When he says, alas for the day, he's speaking about the day of locusts. Why is he so alarmed by the day of the locusts? Well, not simply because it's evidence of God's judgment for their sin now, but his alarm at the day of the locusts is that it points to another day, the day of the Lord. So here is the big theme in Joel. The fact that the day of the locusts has come says to us the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to be even worse. I mean, Israel often thought of the day of the Lord as a good thing and we'll get to the good part of it, but it would be the moment, they, they thought that it would be the moment that proved that they were on the right side of history when nations would get to see that Israel were right all along. But look at what Joel says in verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the, from the Almighty it comes. See, if Israel thought it was good news, they're wrong. It's bad news for all sin and all sinners. In fact, Joel wants us to know that to come under the judgment of God on the day of the Lord is nothing short of terrifying. Uh, In in, in chapter 2, Joel wants us to feel the terrifying and inescapable judgment that is coming on that final day of the Lord. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, even as he reflects on these ongoing hordes of locusts, the mood is darkened even further. Look at what he says. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. See, Joel stresses the darkness of this day, the day when God comes in judgment on the wickedness of this world and on the great and final day of the Lord. And and the advancing hordes of locusts are described like a, a great and powerful army devouring everything in its path. Let's just pick it up there from verse 6. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. 
They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. And then down in verse 11, we're told that this is the Lord's army. It's God who has brought judgment on his people because of their sin and rebellion and God who will judge. And if they thought the day of the locusts was bad, the day of the Lord will bring something far worse than locusts and something that will be for all sinners. It's a judgment that's not just terrifying, but it's inescapable. Look at verse 3 in chapter 2. Fire devours them, sorry, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. You see, when the final day of the Lord arrives, when God brings this world, his world, to face his judgment, it won't just affect some people, it will be everyone. And so at the end of verse 11, Joel deals his final blow. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That's the big question of this book. And the mood here is alarming, and that's because Joel doesn't want us to be complacent. We're incredibly unfortunate here in Australia, aren't we, not to have faced so many of the world's atrocities and natural disasters. We hear of the attack on Israel last week, and we can think, Aren't we glad we're not living there? Or in other countries where war and oppression or injustice and corruption and poverty tear societies apart. And we might think, why doesn't God do something about that? Why doesn't God step in and right the wrongs? Why doesn't he prevent disasters? Why doesn't he come and bring justice? But of course, that's exactly what Joel is all about. The day of the Lord is coming. It's nearer now than when Joel wrote. The day of the Lord is that day when God will come and will fully and finally put everything back in its rightful order. And you might think, yes, Lord, please do that. Fix the sin in our world, the injustices and the brokenness of our world. Please put things right. But am I really ready for that? Because that includes me. Am I ready for God to judge me? You know, I hate the sin and suffering in the world, as I know you do. But what about the sin in my life, the pain I cause others? What about my anger, my impure thoughts, my deceit and lies, the things I hide from others but God sees? Do I really want God to come and judge me with justice, knowing everything about me as he does? Because the day of the Lord means righting all wrongs. And if I'm wrong, then I too will face his purifying fire. Can I say, I don't want God's justice. If God treats me with justice, then I'm in big trouble. I don't want justice. I want God's mercy. I need God's mercy. Because I'm a sinner. And we're going to see more of uh, that mercy and the incredible uh, way in which God brings that about in the chapters that follow. But right now, I think this is where Joel wants us to sit. I think Joel gives us a glimpse, even here, of what he wants us to do. 
So in Joel chapter, chapter 1, verse 19, Joel says, To you, O Lord, I call. And then in verse 14, 14 of chapter 1, he says, he urges the whole of Israel to cry out to the Lord. See, God may be a completely good and righteous judge who will not allow evil to go on forever in any form, but he is first and foremost a good and loving God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so Joel says, cry out to this God, because while the day of the Lord is coming, he is our only hope. Joel was warning Israel and Joel is warning us. The day of the Lord is coming. Who can endure it? The locusts were, as many people have already um, seen, an early warning system to get us ready for the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that will bring something far worse than locusts and something for all sinners. And if we, we reflect back on Luke 13... Jesus wanted the people of his day to properly interpret the times so that they were living in, so that they could respond correctly. They were days where evil and suffering were prevalent because the people of Jesus' day, like the people of Joel's day, were living in a fallen world. And what connects us with Jesus' and Joel's day is that we live in that same fallen world. Jesus tells us how we, we ought to respond in the, the face of things like war or terrorist attacks or natural disasters, be they locusts or anything else, or even how we should respond in light of personal injustices towards us or sinfulness in our own lives. He sees them as incentives for repentance. They're a wake-up call for us regarding our own sinful rebellion against God. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote this, he wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's as if he's saying that God uses disaster as a megaphone to call attention to our guilt and the judgment that it brings. And our response, according to Jesus, is to turn away from our sin and to turn back to God and to seek his forgiveness. The judgments that we experience now are foretastes of the judgment to come. And God's word shows us how to respond. That's what we see in Luke 13, isn't it? When people face calamities twice, Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will perish. There's the answer that we'll see a lot more clearly next week. And there's much good news to come. But for now, Joel wants us to sit under the weight of the reality of God's coming judgment upon our whole world. So alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. To you, O Lord, we call. I think someone's going to come and lead us in prayer. Is that right, Dave? Yeah. Thanks, Ian.